I notice that um, both Harden and I take a little longer to get up here than we used to. <laughs> we can do almost everything we used to do. It just takes more time. I uh, think I will probably make some of you angry this morning. Uh, it's not by intent. Uh, it's happened before. Uh, and I hope that if I do, you will still love me. But I have some things on my mind that, uh, that I've been wanting to talk about for the last couple of weeks, and I think the time has come. I uh, have received a lot of questions about the Middle East over the last couple of weeks. Uh, people asking me how the present crisis fits into the Old and New Testament. What relationship does Russia have to the present conflict? How can we fit the books of Revelation and the books of Daniel into this uh, sad and sorry scene overseas? And uh, my stock answer is, uh, I'm not sure. Like the uh, Mexicans down in Texas, I have to say, quien sabe, who knows? Um, what I, what I sense in the world today is what someone has called an apocalyptic mood. Everybody is thinking about the future. They want to know what's going to happen. What's in the offing uh, for us and for the world? For some, it's simply a, a matter of uh, curiosity. Um, as Charles Kettering said, since we're going to have to live the rest of our lives in the future, we want to know what's going to happen there. For others, the issue is much more intense. There's this whole matter of dread. Uh, war and rumor of nuclear war prevail, and there are a number of madmen around the world that have the bomb, and we're wondering if they're going to blow the earth up. And there's just a, there's a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of concern. I heard uh, recently of a young man who was asked what he wanted to be when he grew up, and he said, alive. And most of us are wondering if we're going to get out of the future alive ourselves. And uh, this so-called apocalyptic mood seems to prevail. Even Christians are caught in the, in the trend. Uh, if I can judge from the recent spate of books and... Uh, Sermons that have been delivered on the subject, and here I am this morning delivering another one. The people who are writing these books, the men who are delivering these messages, are very sincere. But one of the things that, that concerns me is what seems to be a preoccupation with calendarizing and setting timetables and putting together explicit end-of-the-world scenarios. Now, I want you to understand me. I, you know, I love to theologize. I, I like to do that as much as the next person. And it's fun to put together different scenes and what the end of the time will, uh, the end of the age will look like. These are all concerns that, uh, that we enjoy. But an inspired apostle warns us about going too far. He says, don't go beyond what is written. It's very easy for us to make assumptions, 
to make authoritative pronouncements about the end times and to invest them with an authority that they really don't have. We make our charts of the end time equivalent to the fact of the coming itself. And I keep, I can't help but wonder what that is doing to those on the outside. One of the interesting things to me is that a lot of these books are finding their way into secular bookstores. But they're being shelved not with books on religious issues and books on theology as you would expect, but you'll find them on the shelves with Eastern thought, New Age material, books on augury and foretelling and prognostication, a lot of Eastern literature. And it seems to me that outsiders are looking at this trend as though it's just another part of the current interest in trying to divine the future. What, what, what's going to happen out there? What can we expect to occur in the next few years? And that's not the emphasis of Scripture, as we'll see in a few moments. There's another concern that I have. As I read some of the books and as I listen to some of the people that are expounding on this, on this particular theme, there's a lot of what the ancient rabbis called pilpel, Pilpel is hair splitting. Uh, it is the making of very small differences and making those differences differences that matter. Uh, you'll have to pardon me. My mind is quirky, but it reminds me of the current uh, Pepsi Coke challenge. You know, even if there is a difference, it's hard for me to conceive of what difference the difference makes. But some of these... Some of these writers and thinkers and preachers are making these differences, these small differences, differences that divide. Some of them even make these, these differences uh, issues that have to do with inclusion in the church. I, I was uh, reading a doctrinal statement from a church some years ago, not, not a church here in this area. When I came to the doctrinal statement on eschatology or end time things, it occurred to me that neither Martin Luther nor John Calvin, if they were alive today, could become a member of that church. As a matter of fact, no pre-20th century Christian could be a member of, of that church. Sometimes I, uh, we remind me of... Uh, the dwarves in C.S. Lewis's stories that don't know who the enemy is. They innervate themselves, fighting each other. You know, I don't understand why we have to divide over these small issues. I don't understand why we can't, as Paul puts it, struggle side by side for the sake of the gospel. We need to love each other. We need to decide what are the things that really matter, what are the things we know for certain, and what are the things that we do not know. I also think because of our impact upon those on the outside, we need to take a good hard look at some of the zany things that we're doing to try to get across to the world the, the message that the scriptures have in mind. You know, the rapture t-shirts, the bumper stickers that announce that the driver of the car on which the sticker appears might suddenly disappear into thin air. Uh, end of the world comic books that just scare the living daylights out of 
small children not deemed ready for the Lord's return. Those sort of things, I think, have to be, we have to take a good hard look at those and see what the effect is on those around us. And we need to take a good hard look at our preoccupation with hair splitting and making small differences, large differences, and investing in them with an authority that they do not have in the Scriptures. And we need to understand what the Bible has to say about the attitude that we ought to have toward the end times. Now that's why I want you to look at Second Peter this morning. Will you turn with me to chapter 3, Second Peter 3. Second Peter three is, or Second Peter is uh, Peter's swan song. Uh, just as Second Timothy is Paul's swan song, and interestingly enough, both of them have to do with uh, with the end of the age. This was something that was very much on the mind of these apostles. Let's begin reading with verse one. Dear friends, this is now. My second letter to you. The first letter, of course, was the letter of 1 Peter. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. We think of Peter as an unlettered uh, fisherman, but he, interestingly enough, he takes a word right out of classical Greek thought, the philosophical world. A word, a word that Plato used to refer to wholesome thinking, pure reason. In other words, Peter is saying we need to be reasonable people. We need to be girt about with truth. We need to be thinking in terms of, of what we know is true. That's what will keep our emotions in check. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through, the, through your apostles about the future. Uh, as the white queen said to Alice in Wonderland, it's a poor memory indeed that only works backwards. We not only ought to remember the past, we need to re- recall the future, as Peter puts it. Recall what the apostles and the prophets said about the end times. Verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. The last days, as I said when we went through the book of Hebrews, are not some far-off era. They are the days in which we live. The opening verse of the book of Hebrews says, God who spoke to the prophets through the prophets in various ways has in these last days spoken unto us through a son. So the last days is the period between the first and the second comings of Christ. We're living in the last days. And if you have any doubt about that, Jude himself quotes Second Peter, quotes this passage in Second Peter, and applies it to his day. Peter said that in the last days, scoffers will come. Jude looks back uh, just a few years later, and he says, they have come. They're here. This is it. We're living in the last days. Now, now, given the, the fact that the last days are imminent and they're upon us, what should be our, our response? There are two things that we can know for sure, two ideas that we need to recall. Verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it 
will be laid bare. That's the first thing to remember. The Lord will indeed come back, as he promised. Man is having his day today. God is letting man do as he pleases and reap the terrible consequences of his actions. But one of these days, without a doubt, the day of the Lord will come, and it will come like a thief. Not to those of us who are aware of his coming, but uh, to those who are unaware. Now, we don't know when. Jesus war- himself warns us against trying to set dates. He says, it's not for you to know the times and, and the dates. It's not, we don't know the day on the calendar. We don't know what time of the day he will come. But he will come. It's a sure thing. And when he comes, the heavens will disappear with a roar. Peter uses a word that has a very ominous ring to it. It's, it's used in, uh, in the literature of that day of the whistling of an arrow. That sort of sound. The closest thing to it in our day would be the sound of outgoing artillery. Some of you men have had artillery fired over your heads. Hopefully you've never heard incoming artillery. Perhaps you have. But there is just something very ominous about the sound of, a, of an artillery shell going over over your head. It's that sort of sound. Makes, makes chill bumps. One of these days, he says, there, there will be one enormous, ominous note and the whole world will disappear. Just like that. It'll vanish. The elements will be loosed, literally. The word is used of... Uh, separating something into its component parts. Apparently the particles that make up the universe will become unbound and the whole world will fly apart and then God will, from those unbound particles, begin to remake the earth and renew it and and make something entirely different out of the universe. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. It's all going to dissolve. Don't know the timetable. Don't know when. But it's all going to blow up one of these days. And unless we're prepared, it's going to blow up in our faces. Now, it doesn't appear on the face of things that this is really true. We all realize that our world is getting old, but it just seems to roll relentlessly on. And... uh, Peter anticipates that notion. He tells us in verse 3 that in these last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of, of creation. The universe is stable. Nothing ever changes. The universe is immutable. It's unchangeable. It's eternal. Uh, as Flip Wilson would say, what you see is what you get. This is it. Matter will always uh, endure. Uh, some of you will remember Carl Sagan's uh, classic remark the, in his introduction to his book, Cosmos. The universe is all that is, all that ever has been, all that ever will be. So this is it. Matter is all that there is, and matter will endure forever. It'll never cease to be. And we say, well, 
Okay, yeah, I know some cynical, uh, unbelieving scientists that that believe that sort of thing. They talk about uh, the uniformity of of the universe, but I suspect that there are a number of us that, though we ostensibly believe that one of these days the world is going to vanish, in our hearts we really believe in what we see. We pin our hopes on material things, things that will burn up one of these days, on our retirement plans, on our vacation condos, on our earthly careers, on our capital assets, all of the things that one of these days will simply vanish. It's all going to be burned up. All of it. Nothing will endure. Carolyn and I were, were awakened one morning by our son dashing into our bedroom, and he said, the house is on fire across the street. And we ran out to the front, and sure enough, our neighbor's house was in flames, burned almost to the ground. They were away on vacation. When they came back, I still remember her standing out on the front porch, the, uh, the wife of the couple, saying, everything that ever meant anything in the world to me is gone. And I thought, how sad. Oh, I'd hate to see our house burn up. It'd be a real hassle to have to replace all that junk. (laughs) But uh, I can't honestly say that that everything that means anything in this world would be consumed. Carolyn has this little saying, whenever something breaks around our house or something gets lost, she says, oh, well, it's just going to burn up someday anyway. And I think that's the attitude we ought to have toward our stuff, toward our things. doesn't matter. It's all going to disappear. Everything that people put their mind and their money on is going to blow up in their faces. Now, um, we often wonder why it hasn't already happened. We think God isn't running the world right. Why is he letting the world grind on? seemingly inexorably and with no remedy. Peter tells us in verse 5, These who think that everything is going to go on as it is deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of the water and with water, in other words, the heavens have not always existed. Matter has not always existed. It was brought into being by God's creative word. There was at least one time when he did remake the earth By water also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Uh, The Noahic flood was at least one time when God touched down on earth and intervened. Verse 7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. There will be another intervention. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And later in verse 15, he uh, restates that same principle. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. In other words, the Lord's timetable is not set by our clocks, not by the rotation of the earth, not by the number of times that the earth goes around the sun. It is rather set by God's redemptive program. 
And that's why God is delaying, and that's why we suffer, and that's why the world is in such a, you know, he lets it go on, and you know, we have to live with the messes that we make, and, 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 he, and he permits our suffering, just as he permitted the suffering of his people in Egypt, because he loves the world, and he's reaching out to people, and he is not willing that anyone should perish. But one of these days, the day of the Lord will come. And the heavens will disappear. It's inevitable. That being true, and since our whole world is going to burn up someday, what what should we do? Verse 11, he raises the key question. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what what kind of people ought you to be? You understand what he's saying? This is the emphasis of Scripture, and this is the emphasis of all of Scripture, not on specific timetables and and calendars. The issue is not what will become of us, or what will become of Russia, or what will become of of the Arab states. The issue is what are we becoming? What kind of people are we becoming? He answers his own question. You ought to live holy. In godly lives. That's the issue. Holiness is not a good word uh, for us these days. We uh, picture someone whose face would fit well as a frontispiece on the book of Lamentations. Holiness really means different. Living differently from the world. As Jesus said to the apostles, what do you do more than the rest of the world? See, the difference is not that we carry very large Bibles or that we always go to church or we wear buttons that proclaim that we're Christians, but it's rather that we exhibit the invisible Christ to the world. We let people know what Christ is like. That's what holiness is. We ought to live holy and Godly lives, that's the second element, it has to do with worship. The word for godliness here means devotion, devotion to Christ. Because God is more concerned about our intimacy with him than anything else. Everything flows out of our love for him. This is a word for devotion. He's not asking for rigid, legalistic righteousness. He's, he's talking about a Christ-likeness that flows out of our worship of God and our love for the Lord Jesus. That's always the issue. Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me? You know I love you. Because that's what our Lord wanted from Peter more than anything else, and that's what he wants from us. He wants us to love him, and out of that deep, abiding devotion for him, Flow the kind of righteousness, flows the kind of righteousness that makes us different than anyone else in the world. He restates the same principle again in verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, looking forward to what? Looking forward to the uh, destruction of your uh, mutual funds, looking forward to the destruction of your retirement program, looking forward to the destruction of of your retirement cabin. We look forward to all of this. And since we do, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So in summary, uh, Peter says two qualities are expected of us. 
purity and tranquility. Godliness and peace. That's what he's looking for. Now, both of them flow out of our relationship with him. They cannot be conjured up. They cannot be produced on any other basis rather than by faith. Let me ask you to turn one page back to chapter 1. Peter has already introduced this idea, and he's in chapter 3. He's merely following up on, the, uh, following up on it. He says in verse 3, His... Divine power has given to us everything we need for life and godliness. It begins with him. He gives us what we need for godliness. It doesn't come out from within up, from out of us. Everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and goodness. He wants us to be good, but he first pours into our hearts his goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. That's the other gift. We have his nature within us. We have the mind of Christ. We have the person of Christ dwelling within us. He's not over here. He is here within us. For this reason, Make every effort to add to your faith, and as faith is the environment in which we grow. We put our roots down into the Lord who indwells us. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Interesting word. Another word that, that Peter draws out of the classical Greek uh, literature. It's a word that, that was used for self-mastery or, more specifically, for manliness. Uh, this word signifies everything that a man or a woman ought to be. No one has to tell us what a man or a woman ought to be. We know. And Peter says, we can add this because of our faith. Add to your faith goodness, add to your goodness knowledge, that is intimacy with Christ, a deep down closeness to him, and to knowledge, self-control, that is presence of mind. We can be poised in the face of pressure. And to self-control, perseverance, that is the capacity to endure hard and difficult things. And to perseverance, godliness, there's our word again, worship, devotion to Christ. And to godliness, brotherly kindness, the word means magnanimity, having a great big heart that includes everybody in. And to brotherly kindness, love, as rich and as inclusive as God's. Because, he says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. You may be at home in a sickbed. You may be in a wheelchair. You may be out of the action. You may be spending most of your life tending to a small child. You may not be able to, you may think you have nothing to say and no contribution to make to what's going on around you in our world, but you do. If you have those qualities, you are neither ineffective or unproductive. That's purity. Now, the second quality is tranquility. It's peace, just that deep down peace that comes from being informed. As someone has, uh, has put it, if you know who holds the last moment, then you're not uptight about the next one. Let me read something that uh, Evelyn Underhill wrote. I like the way she puts it. She says, real Christians have three distinguishing characteristics, tranquility, gentleness, and strength. 
which suggests an immense depth and steadiness that comes from the fact that our small action is part of the total action of God, whose spirit, as another saint has said, works always in tranquility. Fuss and feverishness, anxiety, intensity, intolerance, instability, pessimism, and wobble, and every kind of hurry and worry, these, even on the highest levels, are signs of the self-made and self-acting soul. God's people are never like that. They share the quiet and noble qualities of the one to whom they belong. So do you, you want to have an impact upon your community? You want to be salt and light? You want to minister to people that are fearful and uncertain about the future? This is the way. They don't need to know all the details of the end times. God has seen fit not not to reveal those facts to us. It's deliberate. I think I know why. If we knew everything, we'd be kibitzing all the time. We'd be looking over his shoulder to be sure that he's on course. He doesn't tell us the next event other than the fact that he's, he's coming back. What we have to do is leave the future to him and mind the present. And the thing to do in the present is to live out his life in purity and, and in tranquility. The events in the Middle East ought to sober us up. They ought to make us think seriously about what we're trusting in. See, there, there are some who say that matter is all there is, like Carl Sagan and others, but there are some Christians who believe that matter is all that matters. That what we see is what we get. These are the lasting, enduring things in life, but what Peter is telling us is that those will vanish with a puff of smoke. But what will endure are these eternal commodities, the righteousness that God is producing in us and, and the people that are being, being won to Christ as a result of, of our godly lifestyle, a lifestyle that's a life that's styled by the grace of God. That, that's what will touch the hearts of people. I hope these events are sobering us up. I heard the greatest story last week. I can't tell you who it is. But there is a young man among us. He is 12 years of age. And uh, he, uh, I got permission from his mother to tell the story. He uh, was watching the news on television and became quite concerned about the events in the Middle East. And after a bit, he went into the kitchen where she was preparing dinner and he said, this looks like the end of the world. He said, you know, I've, I've been playing around at being a Christian for a long time. I want to get serious about my commitment to Christ. And I couldn't help but think, a little child will lead us. One of the early Christians said that uh, biblical truth is uh, an environment in which lambs can swim and elephants, or lambs can wait and elephants must swim. And I think it's never more true when, than, you, than when you hear a youngster like that who has that profound understanding of truth. God grant that it might be true of all of us. Let's pray. Father, we human beings have made such a mess of this globe. There is absolutely nothing we can do to set things right. We know that one of these days you're going to come back and you will renew it, you'll refurbish it.
You'll give back to us a new heaven and a new, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We'll be rid of all this pain and suffering, the hurts, the, the problems we have to face in this life. And we'll step into your presence and enjoy that, uh, the freedom of that relationship forever. That's a sure thing. That's a fact that we can believe in. Knowing that, Father, turns our attention to the present. We want to make our lives count. We do not want to store up treasure here where thieves and where rust and moths will corrupt it or steal it. We want to amass the kind of treasure that will endure forever. We want to invest our lives in things that matter and and things that are eternal. Help us to realize afresh that we have your goodness because we have your indwelling presence and we can begin to rely upon you little by little to change us and to make us more like you. We thank you for the peace of God that controls our hearts and our minds, that settles us in these times when we feel that, that the world is coming apart at the seams. How good it is to know that, that you're in control. And Lord, use us, use our gentle, tranquil, strong lives among people to attract their attention, get them to sit up and take notice and, and hear the fact that, that you're the one who can change a heart and a life and prepare us for eternity. We want our lives to count. We ask that that might be so. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.